Exodus, we're going to pick up at the last verse of chapter 1. We had that last week, but we're tying from that into the next passage. Let us hear the word of God. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Thus far God's word. Let us pray together. Father, as we are assembled in this place to continue in our worship, we rejoice that you have not left us without a witness, but indeed you have given us your word, even the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one come down from the Father. We thank you for the the record of both the old and new covenant, the old and new administration of your covenant of grace. And even as we've stepped from uh, the New Testament back into the Old Covenant, even to these uh, remarkable times and periods when your covenant people were enslaved in bondage in Egypt. Lord, instruct our hearts. Lord, help us even this morning as we look at Moses, that we would see Christ. Lord, take the lips and the heart of our minister and use him to set forth the beauties and the excellencies of Christ. Give us hearts ready to receive and to hear your truth, that in all in all, Christ be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We often talk about the spiritual battle that rages between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It is God who gave us that picture, set out that language, indeed gave us that to speak of the realities of the great spiritual warfare that has been waging ever since the garden when the serpent came in and deceived the woman and Adam rebelled and ate of the forbidden fruit. We saw in the opening chapter of Exodus, Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who arose, who did not know Joseph, did not respect Joseph, and had no regard for the people of Joseph. And he was ruling over Egypt. He was threatened by the massive increase that we've read that took place of the Israelites. You could speak of this using the language of the modern day. Pharaoh had an immigrant problem. These people had come from outwhere and elsewhere, and they were just multiplying and multiplying. We saw last week that Pharaoh's first solution was to oppress the people with heavy burdens and force them into slavery. But that did not work. So then he called on the midwives 
that they should murder the male children as they were being born, something he sought to do in secret. What we see here was an attempt of the forces of evil to destroy the seed. Remember, the seed of the woman was he shall crush. He was a male child, and the seed of the serpent is thus seeking to destroy the male children of the women. So a little aside, he realized that the, why this goes on, Satan has not got a clue who that seed of the woman is. The mystery is hidden under God. We see then as the text continues that Pharaoh's hostilities increased so that his agenda became a command to his very people. Verse 22, he says to his people, so Pharaoh commanded all his people. And we, we need to supply something, and this is a, a, for clarity. Actually, if you look at the Septuagint, a Greek translation of this passage, those translators inserted what I'm about to. It's not part of the original text, but it does supply clarity. So he commanded all his people... He says, every son who is born, you shall cast to the river. What he's saying is every son of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the river. He's not telling them to cast their own sons in. It's implied, but I think it's helpful. Every son of the Hebrews is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Written between the lines of this history is God. God's always in the history. He is at work. And he's keeping his covenant promises to Abraham. We've heard them earlier today. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will bless your generations after you. Note this. And this is true in our day. Nothing Pharaoh tries. Nothing Pharaoh does can thwart, stop, or hinder God fulfilling his promises. God's will will be done. The more Pharaoh oppressed, we heard it last week, the more Israel multiplied. Pharaoh is the embodiment of the serpent seeking to destroy Israel's seed, to destroy the baby boys, but let the baby girls live. But God is at work his wonders to perform. The one true God who governs all his creatures and all their actions is bringing about his plan of salvation. In his text, we see the birth of, of a Savior, the birth of a Savior, not the birth of the Savior, but this birth of a Savior points to the one who will come. We see here a male child born of a woman, born during extraordinary times, times of suffering and affliction, and yet he will deliver his people out of oppression and bring them out of the house of bondage, bringing them even into the plan of promise. We can use four made headings, a special son, Pharaoh's final solution, God's plan for salvation, and how Moses points to Christ. We'll wrap up with that, which would really be a summary of things we'll see along the way. But we'll wrap with how Moses points to Christ. We begin with a special son. As readers of Genesis, we expect God to act for the sake of his people. You remember some years ago when we were preaching through Genesis, we saw it time and again, God acting on the behalf of his people to preserve his people, to bring them along and to bless and keep them. And in verse 1 and 2 tells us that this is what God is doing. It tells us that during these days of oppression, that there was a man of the house of Levi, and he took as a wife a daughter of Levi that are the same tribe. They're descendants from Levi. And they love each other. They come together as a married couple. And we're told in verse 2, So the woman conceived and bore a son. So here we have this young couple. 
no doubt praying for God to bless them with children. And indeed, a child is conceived, and nine months later, behold, a baby born, a boy is born, the very one who the threats of Pharaoh are upon. What's a mother going to do? There are many mothers here this morning, and you've been there in that moment when they place your child just born on your belly, on your chest, and, and you look and you perhaps weep with joy and smile at the same time. The wonder of wonders. Indeed, what a glorious wonder. Now, this woman, this is not the first time she's birthed children. She has an older daughter and a son. But nonetheless, this one was born during the time of the edict that all male children of the Hebrews are to be thrown into the river. But she looks at this boy, and notice what Moses goes on to record under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And she saw that he was a beautiful child, and she hid him. Now, the language here is worthy of note, because in the original language, in the Hebrew, what she said is the same pronouncement God makes after the completion of creation. God looked on his creation when he had completed, and he said it was very good. And Moses' mother uses the same language when she sees her son, that he was good or pleasant. This was a remarkable child. Her statement reflects that of God's. And indeed, is there not that wonderment when we receive in children, those of you that are parents, the wonderment, you see that child, it's pleasant, it's good. But this child is visibly, remarkably Beautiful. So the son is born. But there are those in the land, indeed those who rule in that land, that want that child destroyed. And so the mother's faced with the angst and the anxiety. His cries could be heard at any moment. In any moment, a, a, a Egyptian could be passing by, hear a baby crying, and just break in, find a male child, snatch it away, and throw it into the river. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, mothers? such a calamity, such a travesty could ever be threatening. Well, this is what Moses' parents, his mother particularly, carried about. And we're told the story really from her perspective. Verse 3 says, when she could hide him no longer. She's really focused on it. For three months, she's been successful caring for him. You can imagine her nursing him and hushing him and trying to keep his cries to a minimum lest he should be detected. But after three months, she recognizes As the text says, she could no longer hide him. So she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. Just before we go on, notice that Moses does not record the name of his mother. Isn't that remarkable? He will, later on in chapter 6, we'll hear that her name is Jochebed, and also his father, whose name will be told. But right now she's... Anonymous. She's an ordinary woman. And indeed, like many other mothers in, in Israel of that day, she's an ordinary woman, but what we see about her, she has an extraordinary faith. God has made promises, and she has an extraordinary faith in the promises of God. I'm not making this up. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.23. Now, don't stumble the way this is said Listen to who the focus is on. By faith, Moses, this isn't Moses' faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. It's the parents that are hiding. It's his parents who had the faith. Why? Because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not 
afraid of the king's commandment. The command of the king was to cast male childs, but they didn't. Like the, the Hebrew midwives, they feared God more than man. They were living by faith. And yet, with the diligence, Jochebed, Moses' mother, realized something needed to change. I just want to make an application here. Parents, there's quite a few parents here. Raising children requires living by faith. Not fear. How much more so, you know, you parents with young children, and you know, as we look at the, the landscape of our land, as we're the cultural moment in which we live, indeed it requires faith in the living God for the training up of these children. In faith, parents pray for a child. They, they share sexual relations, and God acts. And this is why we speak of procreation, man obeying God, cooperating as it were with God, and God blessing, acting in concert. By faith, then, parents are to train up a child and then launch them into the world. The promise, and we see this in Moses' life, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, would you have children who flourish and live by faith, living for God's glory, then live by faith? Model faith. Set it before them. Direct them in your training to look to God and to rest upon Him and His promises and to rest in Him and not to live in the fear of man. That's so difficult today. With social media and all these pressures from without to conform, to show off, to be great, to have more likes, more friends. That's fear of man. Teach your children and indeed young children and older. Learn to live by faith. And not fear a man. Well, the time came for Moses to be out of the home. Three months old. We don't usually launch children at three months old, do we? Uh, that would be unwise. But in this situation, something's got to be done. And what we see Jochebed, Moses' mother, do, she develops a wise plan. She's relying upon the Lord. And what she does is remarkable. Follow through with it. She goes through the motions of obeying Pharaoh's command. Into the river he goes. But before she does that, she builds an ark for her son. Children, you know the story of Noah. You know the story of Noah's ark. The word that is used there for Noah's ark is used here for what Jochebed, Moses' mother, made. And it's the only two times it's used. Obviously, we're going to understand there's a connection. But what's interesting about the word that is used here is this word is that the word for a chest that is most often used as a coffin. What Jochebed did, Moses' mother did, was most remarkable. She places her son in a coffin, a little chest made of the reeds of the river. She covers it with tar or asphalt. And no doubt she would have put something over that. She wouldn't lay her child right in on that sticky, gooey mess. Uh, she buffered him from that and created him a little nest. And, and it has a lid as well, as we find out. And then what did she do? He's, he's in a chest, a, a burial object, and he is put into the river, a place where he is to die. And in a sense, there's a death. She lets go of him and she trusts God. Here is a picture in order to bring about life. Do you see the connection to Jesus here? Moses is a savior. And as a small child, 
There's this death. Jesus' death will come later. And yet it's through this death, this picture of death of Moses, that life comes about, as we will see. Even as by Christ's death, and he's placed in the tomb, breaking forth, even as we celebrate this morning, his resurrection on resurrection morning, bringing life, not because of the resurrection, but because of the death that he died. Our salvation is secured because of his shed blood. And indeed, it is the seal and the stamp of the Father's approval. Indeed, the Father again in the resurrection saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You have crucified him, but I've raised him. And here we see Moses going into an ark, placed into the river as though to die. Moses' mother gives him up. Children, I want you to think about this, what Moses' mother does. She places him in the waters of the Nile where the crocodiles swim. Sounds like a pretty extreme thing, doesn't it? But she's trusting God. She's put him in his little waterproof ark, wrapped up in swaddling clothes perhaps. She's placed him there. She's put him in the reeds by the riverbank. And think of this mother's heart, this special son who she so desperately wants to live, even as Mary would have wanted her son to live. And so she follows Pharaoh's command, shall we say, with a twist. Her boy goes into the river, but he goes in an ark. Moses uses the words here in describing what happened. It's not like she didn't throw him into the river, which is what Pharaoh's command was. The words that he used are best translated that she, and they're the same virtues, she placed him in the ark, and then she placed the ark at the river's edge amongst the reeds. You see even the tenderness of a mother in these very actions. She's not throwing away her son. She's walking by faith. She's received a son from the Lord, and now she places him into the care of the God who has given him as every parent must do. I think as parents sometimes are most aware of that when you know, they head off to college, right? Because some of you here, or you know, they, they leave home, hopefully for the first time, maybe the only time, and they're, and they're gone. But even in their infancy, we're to give them to God. That's, that's something of a picture you know, when a child is baptized. We're recognizing these are from the Lord and, and we render them to God. We make a declaration saying, God, you've made promises and by faith we obey your promises. And would you put your sign upon them? They're yours. They belong to you. We entrust them to you. And by God's blessing, you know, we have 18, 19, 20 years or so to train them. And we're engaged with God, not only in the procreation of the child, but in the nurture and the admonition, the discipleship of the child. This is what we see. Moses' mother do. She's entrusting her little one. We've been reminded of that as we've received a family and then see the Lord put his sign upon them. And they promised in humble reliance upon divine grace to endeavor to set a godly example before her, to pray with and for her and to teach her the doctrines of our holy religion. So we try to do, isn't it, parents? So we're called to do. Trusting God for his blessings on our feeble efforts. So here's Moses in the little chest of reeds, an ark in the reeds by the river. And we can turn, continue on. We can consider Pharaoh's final solution. Moses' mother let this child go because this was part of God's plan for her son. This is very unique. You don't see other mothers doing this. We're not really told about what happens to other mothers. I think we should conclude in light of what's said here, that there are male Hebrew children being thrown into the river. 
and dying. Pharaoh really was just that evil. He, he's the, what is pictured in Revelation of the dragon coming, trying to consume the woman and to destroy her, and particularly her offspring, the male offspring, as John writes it there. Moses, though, is appointed by God to become Israel's savior. And God is at work in the details. And if he's not at work in the details, he's not a God. Not a God that we would have. You know, we declare and confess you know, that he um, is sovereign over all his creatures and all their actions. And you see that play out in this story. And we see God will bring his salvation to his people. And he will triumph over evil. So wicked Pharaoh hated God. He hated God's people. And to begin with, he just wanted to oppress them and put down the Israelites. He wanted to make them suffer, try to minimize perhaps their multiplication. But it didn't work. So he turns ultimately to his final solution, the slaughter of boys. First, you know, in secret, talks to the midwives. You know, you just kill them on the birthing stool. But now it's open. He says to his whole nation, join me in my wickedness. Join me in my rebellion. Join me in destroying these children. This is the way of evil. It always wants more power. And it seeks to do greater evil. Each plan of Pharaoh was more severe than the last one. For slavery, it failed. They multiplied. The secret slaughter of children, keeping the girls alive, it failed. They multiplied. So he rolls out plan C. This is his final solution. Some of you will recognize that label. We're going to turn to another time when it's used. All the male babies are to be thrown into the river. Pharaoh's depravity now would have his citizens take part in his wickedness. My friends, this is the pattern of evil rulers down through history. Surely we can recall the actions of Hitler in Nazi Germany. The people, duped, deceived, become complicit in what was once done in secret and unthinkable, even amongst the German people, will now be done in public. What was unthinkable becomes common practice, and soon it will be celebrated. Jews were banned from certain jobs. Then they were forced into segregation. This was followed by open violence against them. Then the Jews were relocated into ghettos, and from the ghettos they were carried to the labor camps, and finally they were carried to places like Auschwitz, the concentration camps. And then the final solution was implemented. Under the, the German people, under Nazi leadership, began to exterminate the Jews at a number somewhere around 6 million. And there were also Christians in that number who sought to protect these people, to keep the Sixth Commandment and preserve life. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? No. It's not even been 100 years. And what do we see today? The rapid rise of evil in our day. What was once unthinkable, done in secret, abortion, is now done openly, blatantly, obvious. And now we see the same thing. What was not talked about now is celebrated. And we are, it is demanded of us that we celebrate this. The murder of little innocent children. Here's the spirit of the, the wickedness of Pharaoh in our day. Is this not a final solution of wicked and perverse people today? Let me think more along the other lines. Not long ago, sexual perversions were only whispered about in secret. And now they're mainstream, mainstream and even on Main Street. They are celebrated and it's no longer okay to just be silent about this wickedness. As perhaps we have been. 
Indeed, they are coming demanding us that we celebrate the evil that they so openly perpetrate. And we see persecution coming to the church for those who refuse to be involved. How long before the government grows weary with those who will not celebrate and participate? It's happening. It's happening, brothers and sisters, even now. I didn't say that to alarm you. We don't live in fear of man. We walk in faith in the living God who is in the details. If indeed he was there in in the days of Moses and he preserved Moses to raise him up to be a savior of Israel, we should not fear what man can do to us today. We rest in God. What was the final, final solution that Pharaoh implemented? All the male babies in the river. This echoes all the way back. What was Cain's final solution? When he saw his brother's righteousness, when Abel was obedient to God and he lived a holy life, strike his brother down. What was Joseph's final solution as they saw this righteous young man? It was to strike him down. They were determined to execute him, to murder him. But God was in the details, and it did. They, they didn't follow through. He was sold into slavery. God's plan is always at work above, in, and through the details. And so we do not live by fear, but by faith in the God of glory. The God of Joseph is still seated on his throne. He is still carrying out his purposes. We're not looking for the coming Savior to redeem us. Indeed, he has done that. But we are looking for the coming Savior who will gather us to be with him forevermore, even as he has promised. So, Joseph's brothers meant what they did for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph proclaimed that to them. Joseph acknowledged that because of what they did and God's good hand upon it, bringing out his purposes, he says, many lives were saved. Where where are the Pharaohs of those days? The best evidence seems to suggest that Ramses was the Pharaoh of the days of the Exodus. And he built for himself a mighty monument. I was reading how that thing is toppled over. It's broken down. I think the face is in in the sand and and the sand blows across it. Pharaoh's gone. His monuments are are a wreck. But God reigns on high. And Moses accomplished the purposes that God had appointed for him. What became of Pharaoh's final solution? Is he not... In some sense, the laughing stock, God has had his way. And that brings us thirdly to God's plan for salvation. As we shall see in the book of Exodus, Moses could later quote Joseph, who would be his great grand uncle. He could quote what Joseph said to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. I'm sorry, what Joseph said to his brothers, he could quote his own great-grand-uncle to Pharaoh, said, you meant it for evil. Your final solution, your atrocity and travesty, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And a whole nation has been saved, and particularly the seed of the woman was saved in the tribe of Judah. Something remarkable. You notice Pharaoh's never named. Pharaoh's just like a general rule, a general name for the ruler. There were Pharaohs upon Pharaohs. Moses, when he wrote this account, he most assuredly knew the Pharaoh's name. He doesn't name him. And even in the passage, we've noticed that Moses' mother's not named because the focus isn't on them. But notice this. In this account, the focus is on five women. The two midwives who are named, Sephira and Pua, 
Moses' mother and sister, I got ahead of myself, Moses' mother and sister, that's four, I can't count, and Pharaoh's daughter. I said, where'd she come from? She plays a critical role, as we shall see. God's plan of salvation is unfolding. Look with me again at the text. Moses' mother puts him in the ark, places him beside the river. And in verse 4, his sister stood afar off to see what would be done with him. Now understand this. If Moses' mother expected crocodiles to eat that child or expected people to come along and to, you know, wreck the, the uh, ark that she made for him, you know, something terrible, would she have left Moses' sister there to watch that happen? No. I mean, no mother would do that, so I want you to watch the Travis cabin. No, she has an expectation that God is at work. And so she has her, her daughter, Moses' sister, watching from afar off. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Ordinary thing, something everybody needs to do. She comes down to bathe, you know, whether she does it once a month or week, who can say, but she's come down. You know, is there a current in the river that bring the basket right up to where she's going to come? You know, God's in these details. Everything happens precisely as he's ordered it. And she's uh, walked along the riverside, verse 5, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maids to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion. Notice that is said first before Moses records that she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. What's her father's command? Male babies are to die in the river. But she had compassion in her heart for this child. Who's at work? God's at work. She has compassion. And when this happens, then his sister, verse 7, says to Pharaoh's daughter, she, she approaches. She's there to see what's going to happen. Uh, she's a wise child, given wisdom from God. She approaches Pharaoh's daughter. She says, shall I go call a nurse for you? She recognizes that this woman is moved. You know, you know, she sees the child. Does she take the child up? We're not told, but Miriam, Moses' sister, is moved to say, shall I go call for you from the Hebrew woman, a nurse, that is a wet nurse, to nurse him, that she may nurse a child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter says, go. Not many words, but oh, what a word. What Moses' sister suggested, she says, make it so, go. And so the maid went and called the child's mother. Wow. God's a word. He, he brings Moses' own mother. Who of all the Hebrew women would want to see that child the most? And who would this little Hebrew child be most comfortable with? His own mother. And so she delivers the child up. And Pharaoh's, I mean, uh, Moses' mother comes. You know, Miriam's successful. She comes and then Pharaoh's daughter says, take the child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So now Pharaoh's mother has her son back. She has the protection of Pharaoh's daughter. And she's being paid out of Pharaoh's treasury to care for this child. Do you not see foreshadowing of the plundering of Egypt when they leave from many years later? Little shadows in the life of Moses. So she took the child and nursed him. What a tender account. Now, we need to understand that in those days, and not unlike some women today, this child would have been nursed at least three years, probably not uncommon. It was indeed what I read, common for five years. Whatever she had, three, four, five years, what do you think Moses' mother was doing? Do you think she just fed him? 
No, she's instructing him. Those are the most formative years. You know, so often the, the educrats think, no, you know, we got to get him into school, but they realize, no, the most important and most critical years with a child are those first months and years with their mother. And Jochebed is engaged, nurturing that child, instructing that child, training that child. So we see here for a brief time, Israel's savior, savior is floating in a small reed chest in the Nile River. And then he was taken up out of it. I want to jump ahead to verse 10. Notice uh, Pharaoh's daughter. She called his name Moses because I drew him out of the water. Now we see here Pharaoh's daughter understood the Hebrew language. I mean, she would have had to converse. She probably had Hebrew slaves in her retinue. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, her maidens that came around, she knew that. And so she uses a Hebrew word that means to draw out. In this case, drawn out of the water. That's what she did. Drew him out. Well, here's something interesting. In Egypt, in Egyptian, there's an equivalent. It's nearly identical to Moses. And the word in Egyptian means the one who draws out. And indeed, what will this one who was drawn out of the water do? He will draw the people of God out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. He is the Savior, and His name resonates with poignancy. God at work, even in the naming of the child, as we see so often in the Scripture. (coughs) And so, when the time came, the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Think of uh, Hannah. Samuel's mother, who asked for a child from the Lord. And then she made a promise. And indeed, she kept that promise. When Samuel was weaned, parallel, she brought him back to Eli. And Samuel served in the house of the Lord. And he had been trained and equipped so that his instruction was solid and biblical from the hand of his mother, prepared to serve God faithfully throughout his days. And so here we are. She became his son. This is an adoption. Now, from what I understand, what I found in the record of history, at this time, Pharaoh had one child, this daughter, and she had no other children. Moses was her child. Who's next in line for the throne? Moses. Moses could have stayed on in that, but you will see later on. He goes out, sees the suffering of his people, and we see it celebrated late in Scripture that Moses chose rather to suffer with his people than to enjoy the luxuries of Egypt. But indeed, he left as a very young child, and he goes into Pharaoh's household, and he would have the very best education in language, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art of diplomacy. The best schools or the best educators were in Egypt, and they certainly would have been in Pharaoh's household. God had another plan for Moses. Think about this. Children, you remember when we talked about irony? When you see something unfolding, you go, huh, didn't see that coming. Isn't that remarkable? Pharaoh, I mean, Moses was being educated right under Pharaoh's nose with the very best of education to prepare him to lead the people of God, to engage with Pharaoh, the diplomacy and the back and forth. God was equipping him in Pharaoh's household to be the one who would lead his people out and indeed rule over that generation. Pharaoh, I mean, Moses didn't grow up as a slave. 
he was prepared to lead. And lead he will. And lead he must. At this point, we must draw our attention to what Paul wrote to the Romans. Written over a thousand years after these events, still true then, are still true now, but also true well before. What did Moses write in Romans 8? And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see this playing out in the life of Moses We spoke earlier about the deterioration of our nation, the decline in morality, the rising tide of persecution in our own land for Christians. But brothers and sisters, we need not fear. We walk by faith as Moses' parents did. God is at work. He's working all things together for the good of those who are his called ones. And indeed, if you're in Christ, you're one of those called ones. God is just as engaged in the events of our day. You hear that? God is just as engaged in the events of our days. You see the minutia in this story. God is just engaged as engaged in our day in the minutia of our lives. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And it's important, the important thing is to focus on is that we ensure that we're the called ones according to his purpose. Let us love God and our love for him be seen with our own obedience. Now you see the d- details here. I want you to just think back to John's gospel. We were there so recently. You think about the events that unfolded. You know, we can think of the whole of life of Christ, but particularly in that last week, all the little specifics, prophecies being fulfilled, people in the right place at the right time, just as God had ordered it. God was in those events, even as the disciples would have been in wonderment as they're in the garden and soldiers come, they snatch their Savior, take Him away, and then they flee. God was at work in all that. Remember how it was that they took Jesus by the house of Ananias, the true high priest? They brought the sacrifice on their way then to Caiaphas' house? Even in that respect to the way that the sacrificial system was to be done, God was in every bit of it. And indeed, what the Jewish leaders meant for evil, seeking to destroy the one who was and who is the seed of the woman who crushed Satan's head, God was in it all and above it all and at work through it all. How does all this point to Moses? Or how does Moses point to Christ? There's so many ways. The story of Moses is uh, about a birth and then a deliverance. It's an amazing story, but it's parallels to Christ. God triumphing over evil to bring Savior, uh, salvation for his people. At the end of Deuteronomy, in the middle of Deuteronomy, Moses prophesies, I will raise up for them, this is God's word through Moses, I will raise up for them, that is his people, the Israelites, a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. That's about Christ. 
Moses is prophesying about Christ. And after Moses died, look at what is recorded. Probably Joshua recorded. Go all the way to the very end of Deuteronomy. The last chapter is verse 34. And we're going to look at the last two verses. What is recorded after Moses is gone. Verse 10. But since then, there, was not, there has not arisen an, in Israel a prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. You know who Moses spoke to when he met with God? The pre-incarnate Christ. He saw Christophany. He talked with the one that he's pointing to. As a savior of God's people in that time, through God's means, he's talking to the one who is the savior of God's people, not just the Israelites, but indeed all who would believe. whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Did Jesus also perform mighty signs and wonders in the sight of all Israel? Yes, he did. In the course of time, as Paul writes, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born of a virgin, even as had been foretold. The son of God, Jesus by name, for that was the name that the angel gave to Mary when she was a virgin, that indeed she would have a child who would be the son of God, and she was to name him Jesus, Savior, for he would be a Savior of his people. And he was born in a time when an evil man was king, King Herod. He oppressed the Jews. He murdered the Jews. And we know that this same Herod, when he learned from the Magi that a king had been born in Bethlehem, notice the parallels, first and secret. He tried to find out where he was. Under the pretense that I may also go to worship him. He meant to murder him. But then his plan failed, so Herod had a more deadly one. His final solution was to send soldiers into the region of Bethlehem to kill all of the male children two years and under. And he did. And there was weeping, even as the prophet is foretold. Weeping of Rachel for her children, who are no more. But Pharaoh, I mean, Herod failed. Why? Because God had appeared to Joseph in a dream. And what did he say? Go to Egypt. Because there are those that are seeking to kill the child. And so they carried Jesus down into Egypt. And then when he was, Herod was dead... Again, God appears to him and says, you can return because those who sought the child's life are dead. Who prevailed? God. But notice this, this going down into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Is that not what God had told Abraham, his descendants would go down into Egypt and then he would bring them up. Christ goes down into Egypt and God brings them up. Here again, God pointing to Christ. For here's the picture of being brought out of slavery, out of the house of bondage, accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of all these things is the Lord Jesus Christ. Evil men sought to destroy him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, all in collusion together, along with Pilate, who knew he was innocent, and Herod, all determined to destroy him. And yet, missing who is Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And indeed, he triumphed. He was nailed to the cross. He was crucified. And there he received the just, righteous wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he bore for us that we, what we would, would never be able to pair. He bore it for us. And in doing so, he crushed Satan's head, though his death was but a bruising of the heel. Because why? As we celebrate today, he is risen. He came forth from the grave. He is triumphant and victorious. The cross was the great battle. At the cross, the great battle was finished. The victory was accomplished. Jesus died, but it was not possible for the grave to hold him. Even as we sung moments ago, that the mouth of the grave declares, He's not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And his victory secures not delivery from slavery, but from sin, death, and the grave. May the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be praised forever. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this remarkable account, the parallels in the life of Moses. Father, we thank you that uh, these things were written for our instruction. We thank you that in them we look and by using scripture and by your spirit even lead us, we see uh, how they point to Christ and how we see that Moses was but a shadow, a mighty man, but just a man pointing to the one who is the mightiest of all, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that our lives are in your hand. You have united us to Christ and you keep us forevermore. We need not fear what man will do to us because we serve a risen Savior who has given us life everlasting as you've promised. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.